You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. On the morning of December 8, 1972, United Airlines Flight 553 took off from the Washington National Airport. The Boeing 737 was bound for Omaha, Nebraska, by way of Chicago's Midway Airport. There were six crew members and 55 passengers on board, including one Dorothy Hunt. While few of the passengers would have recognized her face, many would have known her name. The former government employee was enjoying a brief moment of unwelcome celebrity. Her husband, E. Howard Hunt, was one of seven men who had recently been indicted for breaking into the DNC offices at the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. He was scheduled for a high-profile trial in one month. At about 2.30 p.m., 37-year-old flight attendant Marguerite McCausland was assisting a passenger in the first-class cabin when a voice came over the intercom. The captain announced that they were approaching their descent at Midway. Marguerite returned to the head of the aircraft and fastened her seatbelt. The cabin jostled abruptly. Passengers yelped in surprise. Marguerite told them not to worry. Then, she heard a high-pitched whining sound. She turned to look out the window and saw the rooftops of Chicago's south side looming toward them, growing larger by the second. Something was wrong. They were far too close to the ground. Someone screamed, we're going to crash. Then the plane hit the first tree, and Marguerite shut her eyes, waiting for the impact. The crash would officially be blamed on pilot error. But could it be possible that the error was intentional? Was someone trying to silence Dorothy Hunt? And if so, what did she know? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. Neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
to stream conspiracy theories for free on Spotify. Just open the app, tap Browse, and type conspiracy theories in the search bar. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracies surrounding the infamous Watergate scandal. Last week, we discussed the official story, starting with the bugging of DNC offices and culminating with President Richard Nixon's resignation in 1974. This week, we'll explore some of the biggest conspiracy theories surrounding the scandal. Watergate is one of the most infamous events in American history. Its name is synonymous with corruption, subterfuge, and the gradual loss of faith in the American government that defined the 1960s and 1970s. As such, there are countless conspiracies about this particular topic. Today, we're going to touch on three of them. Conspiracy theory number one. The wife of Nixon's former attorney general was kidnapped, beaten, and held prisoner to keep her from blowing the whistle on Watergate months before anyone else had any idea how deep the criminal conspiracy went. Conspiracy theory number two. The CIA engineered the crash of United Airlines Flight 553 to keep Dorothy Hunt, the wife of Watergate burglar E. Howard Hunt, from revealing damaging secrets about Nixon's administration. And conspiracy theory number three. Nixon's attempted cover-up of the Watergate scandal was motivated by a desire to draw attention away from the real story. That story was that E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis, both Watergate criminals, had carried out the assassination of John F. Kennedy nine years prior. Let's start with our first conspiracy. The wife of one of Nixon's cronies was held captive and beaten in order to prevent her from blowing the whistle on Nixon's connection to the Watergate burglary. This might sound outlandish, but it's hard to say where the Nixon administration would draw the line when it came to protecting this particular secret. When Richard Nixon first heard about the arrests at Watergate in June of 1972, he became so angry that he famously hurled an ashtray across the room. Nixon was particularly furious that James McCord Jr. was among the Watergate burglars, or water buggers, who had been arrested. McCord had previously worked as a security officer for the CIA and was currently employed by the Committee to Re-elect the President. Nixon knew that it was only a matter of time before the connections between McCord and the White House were revealed. This seemingly minor burglary threatened to unravel his entire administration. One of the men in charge of preparing the White House's official response to the arrest was John Mitchell. Mitchell, 59, was Nixon's former attorney general, who by then was the head of Creep. On the day of the Watergate break-in, Mitchell was on the campaign trail in Newport Beach, California, with his wife Martha. Mitchell's fundraising trip was abruptly interrupted when he learned that James McCord had been arrested. He knew he had to get on the first flight back to D.C. to prepare for the inevitable reaction that would come once McCord's connection to Creep was exposed. There was just one problem. John's wife, Martha, was a close friend of McCord's. The Mitchells had hired McCord as a personal security guard in the past, and he frequently drove their daughter to school. 
John knew that when his wife Martha found out McCord was in prison, she would demand an explanation. If Martha didn't like that explanation, a given considering the criminal element at play, well, then the entire administration would likely be in for a very public revelation. In 1972, Martha Mitchell was a celebrity in her own right. The 54-year-old socialite from Arkansas was a regular guest on talk shows and variety shows, where she quickly gained a reputation as a fun-loving Southern belle who always spoke her mind, no matter who it might offend. Well, she was ferociously conservative and would later claim that she had been the one to talk her husband into supporting Nixon in the first place. More, she had a habit of eavesdropping on her husband's calls, having a few drinks, then calling up reporter friends to blab for hours. By 1972, she had done this so much that the newspapers had granted her the nickname, The Mouth of the South. John knew he was about to have his hands full running damage control for Nixon and McCord. But he also knew that Martha would likely leak the news of McCord's connection to Nixon if she found out. So, before heading to the airport, he enlisted former FBI agent Steve King to keep an eye on his wife and told him not to let Martha find out about the Watergate break-in until he got back. In retrospect, things probably would have gone better if John had just been honest with his wife. Well, they certainly couldn't have gone worse. King kept Martha in the dark for all of two days. On Monday, June 19th, Martha picked up a copy of the L.A. Times and was shocked to see a mugshot of her friend James McCord plastered across the front page. She was even more shocked to read the article and find a quote from her husband in which he denied that Creep had any knowledge of the burglary and minimized the organization's relationship with McCord. He claimed that the ex-CIA man had been hired to install their security system several months earlier, but that was all. Martha knew better than just about anyone that her husband was lying, and she didn't appreciate being kept out of the loop. What follows is Martha's account of what happened. This version of her story has been a source of controversy since 1972. Martha became frustrated after she tried and failed to get her husband on the phone to explain himself. In a fury, she told the aide who answered the phone that if her husband didn't call her back soon, she'd have no choice but to turn to her friends in the press for information. As Martha would later tell the story, the FBI agent Steve King was eavesdropping on her when she phoned Helen Thomas, a member of the White House press corps. The furious socialite told her friend that if John Mitchell didn't get out of the dirty business of politics, she was going to leave him. Before the reporter could respond, King raced into the room and ripped the telephone cord out of the wall. Martha's story escalated from there. She claimed that King kept her locked in her hotel room for over 24 hours without food. She even said that during one escape attempt, King threw her on the ground and kicked her. Martha tried to escape in the middle of the night by climbing out of the hotel window. King discovered her and raced to stop her. In the ensuing struggle, Martha put her hand through the glass window. The cut was bad. Martha was going to need stitches. 
Now, we should reiterate that all of these are claims which have largely been unconfirmed in the 40 years since Watergate. But Martha's story does line up with some of the facts we actually know to be true. Here's what we know for sure. At some point during the night, King called a doctor to attend to Martha. When the doctor arrived, he found Martha screaming that she was being held as a political prisoner against her will. Her cries fell on deaf ears. According to Martha, five men held her down while the doctor stripped off her pants and injected a tranquilizer shot into her buttocks. Martha eventually was taken to a hospital and given stitches in her hand. She then flew back east to New York and promptly called her friend Helen Thomas a second time. She claimed on the phone that she'd been a political prisoner, that they had left her black and blue, and that while she loved her husband very much, she wasn't going to stand for those dirty things that go on. On June 26th, Martha's story made the front page of the Washington Post, but many Americans dismissed the accusations of abuse and kidnap as merely Martha being the same old Martha. From there on out, her story became the subject of gossip magazines and tabloids, always focusing on the fact that the wife of the former attorney general was threatening to leave her husband. A few days later, John Mitchell announced that he was leaving his position at the re-election committee so that he could focus on the happiness and welfare of his wife and daughter. But John and Martha's relationship was permanently damaged. Over the next year, as the Washington Post released its series of exposés into Watergate, Martha became increasingly convinced that Nixon was personally involved. She was one of the first public figures to say so. Nixon loyalists immediately set about discrediting Martha Mitchell, calling her a crazy, attention-hungry alcoholic and a liar. She was, unfortunately, an easy figure to discredit, given her reputation for gossiping about matters in which she did not have the facts. She had been briefly institutionalized at a psychiatric ward, supposedly for alcoholism. She often referred to herself in the third person, And she was publicly accusing the President of the United States of criminal activity before anyone else was willing to consider the possibility. In the summer of 1973, Martha Mitchell announced that she was leaving her husband because she believed he was going to jail for his role in the Watergate scandal. She was right. On February 21, 1975, six months after Nixon resigned, John Mitchell was found guilty of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and perjury. He was sentenced to two and a half to eight years in prison, though in the end, he would only serve 19 months. Martha's life was never the same. She made a few more television appearances, but for the most part, she disappeared from public life. In 1975, she was diagnosed with cancer and passed away the next year. At her funeral, a mourner held up a large wreath of white chrysanthemums, spelling the words, Martha was right. Today, Martha Mitchell's legacy lives on in one unexpected way. The Martha Mitchell effect is now a term used by psychiatrists and mental health experts to describe instances when a patient's description of true events is erroneously diagnosed as paranoid delusions. Martha had known the truth, 
or at least part of the truth, about Nixon's involvement in Watergate. But her truth was considered so radical that it was written off as delusional. In 1981, Martha's hometown of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, erected a life-sized bronze statue of her. On the pedestal, they engraved the words, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But just how much of Martha's story is true? It's hard to deny that she was prone to exaggeration and hyperbole. Martha never pressed charges, and no one was ever charged for kidnapping Martha and holding her against her will. For his own part, the FBI agent, Steve King, has denied large parts of Martha's story. But he notably has not denied that he did play a role in her quote-unquote confinement. So maybe this really was an attempt at damage control that got way out of hand. Given what was on the line, it's not a stretch to say that Nixon and his people would do anything to stop the truth from getting out. It's unclear whether Martha knew enough to really hurt Nixon or creep, but she was willing to accuse the president at a time when no one else would. And let's not forget, Martha was right about that. For that reason, I'm giving this theory a 5 out of 10. The Martha Mitchell saga falls into a broader range of conspiracies about how Nixon supporters were willing to use violence in order to protect him. Next, we'll consider the possibility that the violence that followed in the wake of Watergate was anything but accidental. Now, back to the story. Our second theory began six months after Martha Mitchell was allegedly confined to her hotel room and focuses on another potential Watergate whistleblower. On December 8, 1972, at 2.39 p.m., 70-year-old Veronica Kukulich and her 37-year-old daughter Teresa were counting change on their porch in the south side of Chicago. Their German shepherd, Sapphire, lounged lazily on the front lawn, watching cars pass. Veronica's home was less than two miles from Chicago's Midway Airport, and she had grown numb to the sounds of jets passing overhead. As a result, she didn't notice United Airlines 553's approach until the sound of its turbines had become a dull roar. Veronica and Teresa looked up to see the nose of the Boeing 737 smash through the roof of a bungalow across the street. The plane bounced off the roof, wings slicing through treetops and brick, and then pitched toward them. Before Sapphire could so much as bark, the 30-ton passenger jet plowed into Veronica's home, killing mother, daughter, and dog instantly. The plane split in two before finally rolling to a stop and bursting into flames. Marguerite McCausland, the 37-year-old flight attendant, slowly regained consciousness inside the first-class cabin. Her body was pinned beneath heavy strips of metal and bricks. The wall of a house had cut through the plane's ceiling or wall. She wasn't sure which. She could hear the sounds of people dying all around her and was vaguely aware that parts of her body were burning. Somewhere in another part of the cabin, 
Another flight attendant was shouting for survivors to escape through a hole in the tail. Marguerite couldn't move, but it was good to know there were survivors. The billowing smoke grew thicker, the searing heat more intense. Marguerite wasn't sure how much time had passed when she heard the sound of people moving around the cabin. Someone said, there's no one alive in here. Marguerite managed a strangled yelp. There was a screech of grinding metal, and a moment later, the masked face of a firefighter appeared before her. I'm going to put a cloth over your face, he said. We're going to cut you out, and I don't want you to get burned. About ten minutes later, the firefighters carried Marguerite from the flaming wreckage. The flight attendant had third-degree burns, contusions, and lacerations all over her body, as well as a broken wrist, a crushed thigh, and two shattered ankles. Many of the other passengers had not been so lucky. Forty of the 55 passengers and all three members of the flight deck crew died in the crash. The civilians on the ground who were crushed when the plane fell out of the sky brought the final death count of United Airlines 553 to 45 persons and one German shepherd. The tragedy was underscored by the presence of several notable figures among the dead. First was Illinois Congressman George Collins. The second was Michelle Clark, a CBS News correspondent and one of the first African-American network television anchorwomen. But it was another passenger, a woman traveling in coach, who would cause United Airlines 553 to forever live in infamy. Her name was Dorothy Hunt, and she was the wife of E. Howard Hunt, the White House consultant and creep associate. Hunt was one of seven men who had been indicted for the Watergate burglary. The trial was scheduled to begin one month after the plane crash killed his wife. But Dorothy Hunt was interesting for another reason. When rescue workers sifted through the wreckage, they found her purse, which contained $10,000 in $100 bills. There were immediate suggestions that the money had something to do with Watergate. At this point, Nixon's administration was still vehemently denying its involvement in the bugging and cover-up. But it would later come out that Creep had spent upwards of $500,000 covering the legal fees and buying the silence of the Watergate 7. When the White House tapes were released in 2013, they made it clear that Nixon had been prepared to pay more. While discussing how much it would cost to keep the Watergate 7 from talking, he said, quote, You could get a million dollars. You could get it in cash. During the Senate Watergate hearings, James McCord would allege that Creep had used Dorothy Hunt to funnel the money to her husband, who then dispersed it amongst the Watergate defendants. But the allegations didn't stop there. The presence of the hush money and the fact that Dorothy Hunt was killed so soon before her husband was set to be tried in a scandal that was threatening to envelop the White House struck many Americans as too unlikely to be a coincidence. Some started to wonder if the crash hadn't been an accident after all. In the days after the crash, a Chicago-based activist and private investigator named Sherman Skolnick started looking into the crash. And the more he looked, the more coincidences started to crop up. 
Well, the first thing that struck Skolnick as odd was the speed with which the FBI had arrived at the crash site. Normally, a plane crash investigation would fall under the purview of the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB. And yet, residents of Chicago's Southside neighborhood reported that within an hour of the plane going down, the streets around the crash site were crawling with FBI types. William Ruckelshaus, the acting head of the FBI, would later admit that 50 of his agents were at the site just 45 minutes after the crash, arriving before anyone from the NTSB. Working independently, both government agencies came to the same conclusion. The crash of United 553 was the result of pilot error, compounded by poor communication and discipline by the crew. The first issues had risen during the landing. The skies over Midway were heavily overcast on that day. The pilot, Captain Wendell Whitehouse, could hardly see the runway from the air. The Midway control tower radioed to say that another plane had come in just ahead of United 553, and they were flying too close to each other. Captain Whitehouse circled around the airport, giving the other plane time to land. As he began his descent, the control tower radioed again. He was coming in too high. So Captain Whitehouse extended the spoilers to break and steepen the descent. As the plane leveled out, Whitehouse needed to advance the throttle to compensate for the drop-in lift. He did, but not enough. The plane stalled and continued to drop. Moments later, it clipped trees and sliced through the roofs of houses along West 71st Street before finally crashing into Veronica Kukulich's home. Well, that's the official story anyway, and the version that appears in the FBI case file and the 65-page report released by the NTSB. But Sherman Skolnick wasn't satisfied. He wanted to know how FBI agents had arrived at the scene so quickly— when the closest federal office was over 15 miles away. To Skolnick, there was only one answer that made sense. The FBI had already been waiting in the area because they knew the plane was going to crash. Skolnick wasn't the only one who thought there was more to the story. In a June 5th, 1973 letter to the acting head of the FBI, NTSB chairman John Reed expressed his concern that the FBI's involvement invited speculation. Echoing Skolnick's suspicions, he wrote, quote, Our investigative team discovered on the day following the accident that several FBI agents had taken a number of non-typical actions relating to this accident within the first few hours following the accident. For the first time in the memory of our staff, an FBI agent went to the control tower and listened to the tower tapes before our investigators had done so. And for the first time to our knowledge, in connection with an aircraft accident, an FBI agent interviewed witnesses prior to the NTSB interviews. As I am sure you can understand, these actions, particularly with respect to this flight on which Mrs. E. Howard Hunt was killed, have raised innumerable questions in the minds of those with legitimate interests in ascertaining the cause of this accident. 
Ruckel's house responded by denying that the FBI had diverted from protocol at any point. Well, any crash involving sabotage would fall under FBI purview. When the investigators determined that there had been no sabotage, they closed the investigation and turned over all the files to the NTSB. Furthermore, Ruckel's house insisted his men had not been aware of Dorothy Hunt's presence on the plane until after they had closed their investigation. As to the question of why his men had arrived at the scene first, Ruckelshaus suggested that it said more about the NTSB than the FBI. Well, finally, Ruckelshaus reiterated the FBI's initial conclusion. United 553 had crashed due to pilot error, not sabotage. Dorothy Hunt's presence on the plane was nothing more than an unfortunate coincidence. If the FBI's involvement was the only unusual government behavior, that might have been the end of it. But in the weeks and months after the crash, more and more members of the Nixon administration found themselves in positions of influence over the investigation itself. One day after the crash, a Nixon aide named Bud Krogh was made Undersecretary of Transportation, effectively placing him in charge of the NTSB. Krogh would later be indicted for participating in Creep's sabotage campaign. A week later, Nixon nominated Alexander Butterfield, the aide who would later reveal the existence of the Oval Office tape recorder to head the Federal Aviation Administration. And about a month after that, Nixon's deputy assistant, Dwight Chapin, left the White House for a job in the Chicago office of United Airlines. As Sherman Skolnick saw it, within weeks of the United 553 crash, Nixon loyalists had taken control of virtually every angle of the investigation. Skolnick was convinced that there was a cover-up underway, one far darker and more criminal than Watergate itself. Skolnick didn't stay quiet about his theories. He started writing accusatory letters to the government agencies and spread his information through a call-in hotline. Anyone who dialed the number would be treated to a lengthy recording in which the rambling Skolnick expounded his beliefs that the CIA had sabotaged United 553 and murdered Dorothy Hunt in order to keep her from revealing incriminating information about Nixon and the CIA. Rather than ignore Skolnick's accusations, the government decided to tackle the issue head-on. On June 13, 1973, as the Senate Watergate hearings drew to a close, the NTSB held its own public oversight hearing on the crash of United 553 and invited Skolnick to testify. According to reporters present at the hearings, people in the audience snickered at Skolnick as he rambled on about his theory. To be fair, many of the facts he based his theory on were unsubstantiated and based on hearsay. For instance, Skolnick claimed that Dorothy Hunt hadn't just been carrying $10,000, but closer to $2 million. Skolnick didn't offer any evidence for this claim or the implication that the FBI had removed the extra money from the crash site. Skolnick also claimed that he had found connections between 10 of the United 553 passengers and the Watergate scandal. Most of these connections were incredibly thin, but one is truly worth mentioning. 
Michelle Clark, a CBS anchor, had supposedly been investigating Watergate before she was killed. Skolnick also found a witness who said they'd seen Michelle Clark and Dorothy Hunt boarding the plane together. Skolnick believed that this proved his hypothesis that Dorothy Hunt had been on the verge of revealing everything she knew about her husband and the president's illegal activities. But Skolnick's argument wasn't just based on conjecture and guesswork. He had gotten his hands on a copy of the federal reports on the crash, and it highlighted a number of strange details and coincidences. United 553 was fitted with two flight data recorders, commonly referred to as black boxes, which were designed to survive a crash. Mysteriously, both of 553's recorders were missing from the wreckage. When they finally turned up two days after the crash, it was discovered that they had malfunctioned and did not record any information for the 14-minute period before the crash. And that wasn't all. While poring over the NTSB's report on United 553, Skolnick discovered a startling fact. After the crash, the agency had examined the bodies of several passengers and members of the flight crew. The body of the pilot, Captain Wendell Whitehouse, contained a lethal dose of cyanide. Next, we'll examine the theory that members of the flight crew were poisoned. Now, back to the story. Both the FBI and the National Transportation Safety Board had determined that the crash of United Airlines Flight 553 was due to pilot error. But Sherman Skolnick didn't buy this for a minute. There were a number of reasons why the official story didn't sit right with the Chicagoan activist. The fact that Dorothy Hunt, wife of an accused Watergate conspirator, died in the crash with $10,000 in her purse was simply too suspicious to ignore. At this point in time, Martha Mitchell was also loudly telling reporters that she had been kidnapped and held hostage because she knew too much about the president and, quote, the dirty business of politics. And then there was the pilot himself. 44-year-old Captain Wendell Whitehouse was a seasoned pilot who had worked for United Airlines since 1956. He had logged approximately 18,000 hours of flight time, more than 2,400 of which were spent in the cockpit of a Boeing 737. It seemed incredible that such an experienced pilot would make such a deadly error. But Sherman Skolnick's suspicions reached a new level when he received some stunning information from the pages of the NTSB's report. The body of Captain Whitehouse had shown signs of cyanide poisoning. According to the FBI and the NTSB, there was a perfectly reasonable explanation for the cyanide, one that didn't point to sabotage or murder. When some plastics burn, they release cyanide gas. The cyanide poisoning was a predictable result of the fire burning through the plastic foam within the aircraft's hull. But there were a few problems with this explanation. The other members of the flight crew were in the cockpit with the captain, and all three men were breathing the same air and exposed to the same fumes. 
And yet, the bodies of the co-pilot and second officer showed no signs of cyanide poisoning. As far as Sherman Skolnick was concerned, it was the amount of cyanide in Captain Whitehouse's body that made the official explanation implausible. The captain's body was found to contain 3.9 micrograms per millimeter of cyanide, almost exactly four times the lethal amount. Hypothetically, once the captain had inhaled a lethal amount of fumes, between one and two micrograms per milliliter, he would have perished and would not have been able to inhale any more. Skolnick therefore concluded that the cyanide in White House's blood could only have been delivered through ingestion or injection. It's important to point out that Skolnick is not a medical expert, and his logic here makes some significant leaps. Just because an amount of a toxin is considered lethal, that doesn't mean the effect is instantaneous. The captain could have still been alive after inhaling a deadly amount of fumes, or he could have inhaled a great amount all at once. But that doesn't explain why Captain Whitehouse's cyanide measurements were so different from the other members of the flight crew. And there was one more detail that might support Skolnick's hypothesis. A single line in the FBI's report on the crash read, quote, Two stewardesses and a federal narcotics agent who were aboard this plane have been interviewed by agents. Skolnick later learned that the narcotics agent was named Harold Metcalf, that he had been seated near the cockpit, and that he'd been carrying a firearm. He also had experience working as a parachute jumper for the CIA. In intelligence terms, Skolnick believed that Metcalf was a double cutout, that he had been sent to poison and murder Dorothy Hunt, but did not know that the CIA had sabotaged the plane. In other words, he was never supposed to live. In the end, the NTSB dismissed Skolnick's theories and reiterated its original findings. The crash of United Airlines 553 was due to pilot error, and the presence of Dorothy Hunt was nothing more than a coincidence. Personally, I'd give this theory a 3 out of 10. That might seem a little high for a theory that accuses the CIA of murdering 45 people. But Skolnick did uncover a lot of strange coincidences that might be going on with the flight. The sudden rush of Nixon aides into the various agencies responsible for investigating the crash is particularly suspicious, not to mention the malfunctioning black box. Those are suspicious details, but the fact remains that Skolnick was never able to provide substantial evidence that the CIA sabotaged the plane. In fact, his decision to blame the CIA rather than the FBI or another group seems to stem primarily from his belief that the CIA specifically had something to hide. This brings us to our third and final theory. In August of 1974, the first of the Nixon White House tapes were released, and the American public finally received proof that the President of the United States had instigated a cover-up. But not everyone was satisfied. To many Americans, the initial criminal act of Watergate, breaking into the DNC offices and spying on political opponents, seemed like small potatoes. Nixon's true crime was in obstructing justice by squashing the investigations into the scandal. 
But if that was true, why was Nixon so desperate to keep the truth from coming out? It seemed inconceivable that the president would pay a million dollars just to hide his role in a so-called third-rate burglary. Unless there was something else, something darker, that he was trying to hide. For some suspicious Americans, there was only one secret large enough. The assassination of John F. Kennedy. This brings us to our final and most outlandish theory. Nixon's attempted cover-up of the Watergate scandal was motivated by a desire to draw attention away from the truth that E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis had carried out the assassination of John F. Kennedy nine years prior. For over a decade, conspiracy theorists had poked holes in the official story that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting alone in the assassination of JFK. We don't have time to delve into the minutiae of the theory in this episode on Watergate, but some Americans believed that the CIA either orchestrated or played a role in Kennedy's assassination. Nixon's smoking gun tape offered a tantalizing breadcrumb for followers of this theory. On June 23, 1972, in a conversation with Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman, Nixon began rambling about things that could come out if the FBI were to investigate Watergate properly. Specifically, he says, quote, This fellow Hunt, uh, he knows too damned much. If he was involved... If it gets out that this is all involved, the Cuba thing, it would be a fiasco. It would make the CIA look bad. It's going to make Hunt look bad, and it is likely to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing, which we think would be very unfortunate, both for the CIA and for the country. The mention of the Bay of Pigs, the failed military invasion of Cuba often cited as John F. Kennedy's greatest failure, was fodder for conspiracy theorists to believe the government had something to hide. Their suspicions were seemingly substantiated years later. In his 1978 memoir titled The Ends of Power, Haldeman stated that the Bay of Pigs thing was Nixon's way of making an oblique reference to the Kennedy assassination. He wrote, quote, After Kennedy was killed, the CIA launched a fantastic cover-up. The CIA literally erased any connection between Kennedy's assassination and the CIA. Later in life, Haldeman attributed this passage to his memoir's ghostwriter and claimed that he never believed Nixon was talking about Kennedy's assassination. Haldeman tried to dismiss the severity of Nixon's statement by establishing that Nixon often complained about JFK in the Oval Office, he felt that Kennedy hadn't received enough flack for his decision not to provide further air cover that could have made the Bay of Pigs mission a success. Well, this could be plausible, but it also could be a shrewd attempt to cover up what Nixon was actually saying about Kennedy in the smoking gun tape. But the theory doesn't stop there. To explain it fully, we've got to go back to November 22, 1963, the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. After the assassination, several Dallas-area newspapers printed photographs of three men who appeared to be in police custody at Dealey Plaza, near the grassy knoll. Several years later, 
Conspiracy theorist Richard E. Sprague suggested that these men were involved in the assassination. They came to be known as the Three Tramps. In 1974, a group of JFK assassination researchers who had been following the Watergate coverage compared the photograph of the Three Tramps to images of the men involved in Watergate. They determined that two of the tramps bore an uncanny resemblance to E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis, another Watergate bugger who had previously worked with the CIA. To be clear, the resemblance between Hunt and Sturgis and the tramps in question is debatable, to say the least. I've compared the photos, and while they are a bit blurry, I don't think they look like the same people. You're not alone. In 1979, a U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations reported that forensic anthropologists had reviewed the photographs and determined that Frank Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt were not the tramps. But some people still aren't satisfied. There are theories that E. Howard Hunt was one of the tramps, but was wearing a disguise. Others have gone even further, contending that Hunt unilaterally instigated the Watergate cover-up by using a voice-altering device to impersonate members of the Nixon administration. In the end, all of these theories are transparent attempts to connect the CIA to JFK's assassination. Hunt and Sturgis only became linked to the theory because they were in the news for the Watergate scandal and were known to have worked for the CIA. I'm going to give this theory a 2 out of 10. Even if you believe the CIA was involved in JFK's assassination, there's very little evidence to suggest that this played a role in the decision to cover up Watergate. Instead, it seems that Nixon's reference to the Bay of Pigs was a way of pressuring the CIA to help him with the cover-up. Looking at all of the conspiracy theories surrounding Watergate, the one we find most convincing is the story of Martha Mitchell. While we can't say for sure whether Martha knew enough to bring down Nixon, it's fascinating to consider how things might have been different if Steve King hadn't ripped the phone out of her wall and interrupted her call with Helen Thomas. And even if Martha didn't have the dirt to bring down Nixon, it's fascinating to consider that the wife of a U.S. attorney general might have been essentially held captive and no one was ever held accountable. Beyond the individual theories, one of the most interesting things about Watergate is the way it altered Americans' perception of the government, authorities, and conspiracy theories in general. After the 1960s, Americans were primed for suspicion and distrust in a way they had never been before. They had lived through the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. The Cold War brought espionage into the spotlight, but Watergate brought things to another level. A Pew Research study found that the percentage of Americans who said they trusted the U.S. government always, or most of the time, dropped from 62% in 1968 to 33% in 1976. It has never returned to the rates before Nixon's presidency. In other words, the U.S. government still has not regained the trust it lost to the Watergate scandal. One explanation of this shift is that Watergate actually was a conspiracy. 
It involved a clandestine plot by a small group of powerful figures who spied, cheated, and lied to get what they wanted. The Nixon tape showed that the White House had been lying to the American people for years, finally proving that the official story isn't always the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.